Hello once again, this is Gary Zacharias with The Apologist Bookshelf. I want to take a second look at Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God, subtitled Belief in an Age of Skepticism. Uh, I think this is a wonderful book. I've already uh, covered one of his chapters in my first 100 podcasts. It was uh, the chapter, actually I'm just kind of working my way through the book because it's got so many good chapters. But I did chapter one last time, there can't be just one true religion. Well, this one is chapter two, how could a good God allow suffering? What a question, huh? Um, Keller starts off by saying, for some people, it's the ex exclusivity of Christianity that bothers them, but he said, for others, it's the presence of evil and suffering. And that's what I've heard over and over again, that poll after poll says that's the number one question. If people could ask God one thing, they'd say, why? Why is there so much evil and suffering in this world? He uses an example of tsunamis that hit and uh, murders and things like that. And uh, he says, you know, it's kind of interesting because there's a hidden premise that goes on for people who say all this evil points out there can't be a God. He says, what's really being said indirectly is, if evil appears pointless to me, then it must be pointless. And he says, of course, that's not good thinking. That's fallacious. Just because you can't see or imagine a good reason why God might allow something to happen doesn't mean there can't be one. So that's enormous faith, he says, actually lurking down deep there in the skeptic enormous faith in his or her own cognitive faculties. It's like, well, if I can't think of something, then obviously it, it doesn't, uh, it's, there's no reason for it. Now, many uh, people assume that if there were good reasons, then they would know them. And he says that doesn't really hold up very well. And he says not just logically doesn't hold up, but he said even to experience. And Keller says that more than once he's preached on the story of Joseph in Genesis and uh, we all know that story about poor old Joseph getting thrown into a pit and sold into a life of slavery. And he's uh, probably prayed to God a lot of times to help him escape, but no, he ends up in slavery. He's got bondage. He's got misery. But it did something to him. It strengthened him. It actually refined his character. And eventually he rises up to be the prime minister of Egypt. So Keller says, you know, if God had not allowed Joseph's years of suffering, then he wouldn't have been a powerful agent for social justice and spiritual healing. Now, the reason he mentions that text, he says, after he preaches this, he said he's heard from a lot of people who identify with it. He said many people have told him that they really, the most of the success, the things that they needed for success in life came to them, not through good things, but they came through difficult and painful experiences. It says some of them actually have looked back on a terrible illness and realized that was actually a time of personal and spiritual growth. He has a story here. I just have to share the story because it's powerful. Keller says he knew a man from his first parish and lost a lot of his eyesight. He'd gotten shot in the face during a bad drug deal. And this man told Keller that he had been extremely selfish, he'd been cruel, but he'd always blamed all of his problems on other people. Then he lost his sight but it humbled him. He said, this is a quote from this man, as my physical eyes were closed, my spiritual eyes were opened as it were. I finally saw how I'd been treating people. I changed and now for the first time in my life, I have friends, real friends. It was a terrible price to pay and yet I must say it was worth it. I finally have what makes life worthwhile. Isn't that interesting? So Keller is saying, obviously these people are 
they're not happy for the things that happened to them, but they wouldn't trade the inside or the character or the strength that they had gotten from them for anything. So he said, you know, given enough time and perspective, most of us can see at least some good reasons for some of the tragedy and pain that occurs in life. So why couldn't it be possible, Keller asks, from God's vantage point, that there are good reasons for all of them? So he says, you know, if you have a God that's big enough, transcendent enough to be mad at because he hasn't stopped evil, then at the same time, you've got a God who's great enough to have good reasons to allow it continue that you don't know about. He says you really can't have it both ways. His next section in the chapter talks about evil and suffering being actually evidence for God, not against God. And he uses C.S. Lewis in this chapter. Lewis says, My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? So do you see what's going on there? We say, now, come on, people should not have to suffer. They should not die of hunger. They should not be oppressed. They should not be excluded. But if you believe in evolution alone and there's no God, then natural selection depends on death and destruction and violence. That's just perfectly natural. That's the way the world works. So what's our basis then for an atheist to judge that the world has gone wrong or it's unfair or things are unjust? The non-believer in God doesn't have a good basis for being outraged at injustice. If you're sure that this natural world is unjust, and who wouldn't believe that? I mean, just look at a headline on any day's newspaper. If you don't, if you are sure the world is unjust, then you're assuming the reality of some kind of supernatural standard by which to make your judgment. Otherwise, it's just your personal feelings. All you could say when you look in the newspaper is, oh, I don't like this whether it's Ukraine being invaded by the Russians or a report about the Holocaust, all you can say is, I don't like it. Once you say it's unfair, it's unjust, that's real oppression, then you've got a standard beyond you and beyond the human race. And this is, I think, a very powerful argument. Um, He actually has a quote from a philosopher, Alvin Plantinga, who said, a secular way of looking at the world has no place for genuine moral obligation of any sort. And thus, no way to say there is such a thing as genuine and appalling wickedness. Isn't that interesting? So it actually cuts the the, the legs out from under the atheist complaint about the existence of God. How can there be a God if there's evil and suffering? Well, if there is evil and suffering, there has to be a God. There's got to be a standard that we're appealing to. Now, he says at this point, he says, you know, so far this chapter has been kind of logical and philosophical. And he said, but we're dealing with real life sufferers. And he said that the, the next thing to consider is that the Christian God came to earth to deliberately put himself on the hook of human suffering. Christianity may not provide reasons for every experience we have of pain, but it does provide deep resources for us to face suffering with hope and with courage rather than being bitter and, and despairing. So he tells a little bit about the, the life of Jesus, what he went through. He didn't approach his approaching death with fearlessness. He was just horrified, you could tell. Then he had a three-hour long death by slow suffocation and blood loss on the cross. What was going on there? Why, Why was he suffering so much? Well, we go back to the Trinity, and that's where Keller takes us. He says, 
the Son of God, was not created. He took part in creation, but he lived all eternity in the bosom of the Father, according to John 1.18. So he had this wonderful relationship of absolute intimacy and love. But what happened? On the cross, he was cut off from the Father. And as Keller points out, is there anything more agonizing than the loss of a relationship we really want? Like maybe if a friend says they don't want anything to do with you, that hurts. What if somebody you're dating does that? Then it hurts even worse. But what if your spouse does this to you or a, a parent does it to a child? That's huge psychological damage. So he says, can you imagine not just losing a friend or a spouse or a parent, but what if you lost the infinite love of the Father that Jesus had from all eternity? That would have been unbearable. So Christianity says that Jesus bore, as our substitute, an exclusion from God, just a horrific thing that we merited. So he says the death of Jesus was different than any other death. It wasn't the physical pain as bad as that was. It was the spiritual experience that Jesus went through, cosmic abandonship, abandonment, sorry, Christianity alone, among all the world religions, claims that God became uniquely and fully human in Jesus. And so he knew firsthand what it was like to suffer despair, to have your friends reject him, the loneliness, the, the poverty, bereavement, the torture, the imprisonment, all sorts of things, even beyond the suffering that all of us go through, Jesus experienced. This is the, a world religion that it's the only world religion that I know of that says, we worship a God who has wounds. Now, that's not Keller's words. That's mine. I heard from somewhere else. I thought that was really powerful. As Keller begins to wrap up the chapter, he says, you know, we may not know what the answer is to all the suffering, but we know what the answer is, and it can't be that God doesn't love us. He says it can't be that God's indifferent or he's detached from our condition. He takes our misery and suffering so seriously, he took it on himself. How amazing is that? So if we embrace the Christian teaching that Jesus is God and they went to the cross, we have this deep consolation and strength to face the brutal parts of life here on earth. God is with us, even in our worst sufferings. And then one final thing that Keller gets into, which I think is powerful, and that's resurrection and suffering. What's ahead? He says, we also need hope that we know that our suffering is not in vain. Well, how do we know that? It's the fact of the resurrection. He says, you know, the secular view of things sees no future restoration after death. It's just done. And he says, Eastern religions say we lose our individuality, return to the great all soul. So all of our uniqueness as an individual is gone. But he said, the biblical view of things is resurrection. Now he says, that's not just a consolation for the life that we never did have, but it's a restoration of things that we always wanted to have. It was a, a radically new concept. Jesus says he's coming back with such power that the very material world and the universe is going to be purged of all decay and brokenness. As Keller says, all will be healed and all might have beens will be. So he says, if we embrace the Christian doctrine of the incarnation and the cross, it brings immense consolation in the face of suffering. I say amen to that. Uh, recently, uh, I've lost family members and uh, this, this is what keeps us going. The doctrine of the resurrection can instill us, he says, with great hope. He says, there's the ultimate defeat of evil and suffering. It won't just be ended, but it's going to be so radically vanquished, Keller says, that what has happened will only serve to make our future life and joy infinitely greater. 
So that's chapter two from Keller's book, The Reason for God. Uh, excellent book. Been around for a while. It was a bestseller. And I hope you have a chance to take a look at it. Thank you so much for spending some time with me. And we'll do another podcast soon.